Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Think Education podcast. Uh, my name is Chris Hill, as always, joined by Judith Lamy. Um, today, we are delighted to be joined by a colleague from Germany. And I'm wondering if, Tim Rotleb, you are maybe the first guest we've had from Germany. Um, uh, I've been following Tim's writing and work now for, for quite a while. I've been, been lucky enough to have been in sort of several sessions that he's been running or, or working with. Um, and I, I find his, his work both fascinating and, and absolutely tied into, you know, some of the stuff that Judith and I have been talking about and writing about, I guess, over the past two to three years now. Um, uh, Tim Rob currently works as a science manager at the Brandenburg University of Technology, Cottbus Semfenberg, which is BTU, easily uh, abbreviated, where he's an officer in the Department for Regional Transformation. Uh, the department focuses on the development and implementation of strategies for the university's role in sustainable regional development. It seeks to foster cooperation between the university and regional actors and aims to sharpen the university's research profile. So again, exactly in line with you know so many of the conversations we've been having uh, recently. Before joining the BTU, Tim worked as a researcher at the Leibniz Institute for Research on Society and Space abbreviated as IRS, which obviously has a very different meaning depending on uh, which country you're, you're based in, um, where he was part of a research group investigating international branch campus development from urban and particularly I found this really interesting economic geographic perspectives. Uh, Tim recently submitted his PhD thesis in geography at the Humboldt Universität zu Berlin and Tim studied politics and economics of the Middle East at the Philips Universität Marburg and worked for UN organizations in Cairo and Berlin. Um, and as I said, it's a, it's a great pleasure to have uh, Tim with us to talk more about his writing and his reflections on, on these key, key issues. Um, so, uh, Tim, I wonder, uh, maybe just to start us off, just by way of introduction, um, is there more detail about the centre or about current projects that you're working on that would give us maybe more context to your to your current activity? So at the at the BTU BTU you mean? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. So I just started a couple of months ago because I thought it would be a nice way to kind of uh, do some more, let's say, practice oriented work. Although I'm still working in the broader field of academia but not as, an, as a scientist at the moment. Um, I think it, uh, it's a nice, um, nice um, comparison to the research I did because my research was, of course, it was on the Gulf region. It was on offshore campus development, a very particular phenomenon. But on a broader level, it's about, it's about, about the role of universities for regional or for economic transformation processes because I think that's what offshore campus development is about for the governments in the Gulf region and now I'm working also in a, in a similar way in within a university that has been assigned a, a, a key role for the regional transformation of of the area that Cottbus, the city of Cottbus is in which is Lausatia. So Lausatia is one of the three regions in Germany um, that were were still are centers of lignite mining and now Germany is phasing out lignite mining. So there's this process of structural change going on or regional transformation. We're still 
I'm never sure how to translate it properly because in Germany we say Strukturwandel, which is a very distinct word. And the, co the correct translation or the direct translation would be structural change. But I think regional transformation captures it, captures it better. So, and we have a very similar narrative here. So the university is supposed to, to produce higher skilled labor. It's supposed to, to produce innovation and entrepreneurs that then somehow contribute to build this. Yeah, we, they don't use the word so much, but it's basically the same narrative of a knowledge-based economy um, creation in this region. Yeah. Now, and now I'm not researching it any doing not uh, doing no more research on it at the moment, but figure, try to figure out how to how to shape this role and implement this role that the university is given by the regional government. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Um, I wonder, I see, because maybe if I can kick us off with um, something I read in one of the, the recent articles that you wrote, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote it directly because I think it's, it's a very clever way of summing up, I think, ideas that Judith and I have been batting back and forth. And the article says that universities and cities have become entangled with each other in reproducing the networks through which capitalism expanding its economic and social relations across space. And this issue of the role of a university within community or within you know, the city or within the region or the nation uh, is something that you know, has, has, has been on our mind uh, for, for quite a while. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you can maybe reflect on, on the work that you've done in that sort of I was going to say entangled mess. That's that's maybe a little yeah. little extreme, but you know that that sort of interconnectedness, and and particularly we're we're really interested in, you know, from where a university gets its identity and and, and you know how it you know collaborates or learns from or gives back to the, the the location in which it it comes from. You know, sometimes very historically based, right? Mm, yeah. So, so I would say my re in my own research. Um, I was focusing less on the aspect how this entanglement actually works. You know, I wasn't kind of evaluating the output of universities or looking how much innovation they actually produce. Of course, this this is an important context, but I was mainly interested in this in the rationals and the discourses and how they are produced and how this guides decision makers in investing in university offshore campuses, for example, on the university side, but also in investing in all these uh, large infrastructures that you see in, in Dubai, in Qatar. But it's, I guess it's a similar question now um, in, uh, in Germany with the regional transformation process because there are a lot of money is going into it. So I'm interested in what guides these decisions. Um, in this, and how this entanglement is created, you know, and I think this, This entanglement is a very big factor of it are these uh, expectations that are uh, coming with it. We have all these discourses about the triple helix, the quadruple helix and stuff like this. We have this the civic university or the engaged university, all these different kinds of models that are being conceived and sometimes also discarded again. Uh, but these uh, narratives of how a university is supposed to, supposed to have an impact on the societies that I that they are embedded in. And I mainly created in how this is how these discourses are created. What I'm seeing now that um that there's a, I think um a lot of let's say maybe over expectation of what a university actually can do. 
I see this in my own research and I see this right now at uh, where I'm working in. A lot of money is going into, into the university. Um, a lot of tasks, tasks are given to the university in terms of regional economic transformation, regional development. And I'm a bit skeptical now if it's not maybe several tasks too many that are given to the university. Yeah, but it's, uh, uh, I think, a, a very large discussion. But uh, it, it doesn't stop politicians to, to pour a lot of money into these, into these programs. <laughs> I suppose one of the one question could be whether they're putting enough money into the programs or whether they're expecting the universities in many ways to, to fund a number of these things. I mean, it, when, when you were just talking there, Tim, um, I, I, th- I found what was particularly interesting was you mentioning all of the multiple things that the universities are um, that the universities want to do that universities are asked to do and that universities are expected to do Um, and one thing um, I'd really value your thoughts on are do you do you see these very often as conflicting priorities that you know that that make it quite difficult you know almost almost if a university achieves in one area around civic engagement and around regional development mm. that they by its mere nature if they're doing a lot of that they can't necessarily you know succeed in some of the other areas that you've mentioned be it looking at offshore campuses and things like that i mean do you see that in it because it's clearly a very complex interrelation isn't it of of ideas and motivations and activities. Yeah. And, but do you see some of these as particularly being conflicting priorities or not? Definitely, most definitely. So let's take the example of offshore campus development. Also, maybe Dubai as an example. So there is a very conflict. There are very there are two conflicting motivations. One is a motivation of the offshore campus developing universities to make a profitable campus in Dubai. So this means to attract a lot of students, basically, because this is the main source of income. And to attract as many students as possible to as, with as low costs as possible, a lot of them tend to, to, um, to, to build these offshore campuses with easy-to-transfer programs, so business programs, uh, ICT programs, stuff like this. On the other hand... The government of Dubai, as far as my interviews lead me to believe, and the strategic documents uh, say, they want to have this research. They, they they would love to see this research-intensive offshore campuses. So, but this doesn't bring. Uh, it's very, isn't very profitable, at least in the beginning, because you need a lot of students in programs that are easily to. Uh, to trans- easy to transfer from the from the home campus, so that's uh, I think a very important conflict that lies in the root of why offshore campuses aren't bringing the results that the political narrative or the political expectation uh, one wants us to believe. An- another example, also in B2- at the BTU at the moment in, in Lausitia, um, there's also a conflict because you have interests again of the regional government also of the federal government and then the interests of the of the university the university now it's a small and relatively young university so it wants to develop into a 
research uh, intensive university it wants to grow its student base it wants to become like we have this uh, like ex what's to 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 expand its excellence profile you know and for this you need to do a lot of also basic research you need to do uh, bring in eu programs uh, dfg programs uh, projects sorry um but now because of this process of structural change or regional transformation and um, the government fundings that go into it which to which the university has access um, it also has this role of of or it get gets assigned this role to to have very practice oriented projects which kind of contradict the, this this uh, this aim of achieving uh, or increasing its excellency profile no it's uh, it's not necessarily co contradictive all the time but it's sometimes diverging paths and uh, this is i think because of the different rationals in play uh, in academia or and academic careers and then in this whole context of regional economic development I suppose as well what, um, if I may, Chris, just jump, jump in again just to follow this up before I pass back to you. Um, I suppose as well what strikes me here, when, we, when we're talking about research, it's most simplistic, when we're talking about research areas and then we're talking about learning and teaching, certainly in the UK, and this might be different in, in Germany, um, but certainly in the UK, research doesn't actually make a university any money. You know, we have to cross-subsidize research in order to be able to do it. So, you know, the money that you bring in through different sorts of projects, through innovation projects, but through students, you know, helps support your research culture and your research platforms. That's not saying that the research isn't vitally important and that the outputs of the research and any applied research isn't vital for dealing with, you know, multiple aspects of climate change or health innovation right so it's not saying it's not important but when you get down to the nitty-gritty of the fact that universities are businesses and they employ a lot of people and those people like to get paid then the way in which they get paid is by the money that comes into the university and so I suppose there is there certainly in the UK that kind of tension because as I say often your learning and teaching activity has to cross-subsidize your your research activity And it probably, therefore, is a similar way in which it plays out in the branch campus model. So mm. I would imagine there's a strong academic motivation for institutions to be having, you know, strong research connections somewhere. But just simply, practically, they've got to make some money in order to just survive as, as a business. I don't know whether that's the, that's the same where you are, Tim. No, that's not not at all the case because I think that's a important difference between the the German university model or system and 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 the British or also the American um, because the 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 large majority of universities in Germany are publicly funded universities, so of course there is there are financial struggles because uh, public funding is cut sometimes and there's never enough money. But it's I would say it's still in comparison at least, a pretty stable income base and universities are not not that much dependent on the student numbers. Of course, their public funding depends on the student numbers, but it's not 
uh, I, I don't think it's um, that big of a problem as it's in, in British universities. Um, so if you're talking about offshore campus development from German universities, for example, there's no financial incentive um, for them to do it. Actually, German offshore campuses lose money usually. They, most of them exist only because of uh, of cross-funding from some some local regional actor. Usually some wealthy family, for example, um, a wealthy alumni or some government organization. Um, so the the motivation is on the on the surface as, as at least as it's sold to to the public and we also did some interviews with with um with German decision makers in universities it's an academic motivation and and then if you when you dig deeper it's a very personal motivation of a handful of mostly older men <laughs> just a couple of years or not even years before their retirement and that's something that they wanted to to, to see hmm. yeah it's, it's a bit uh, it's difficult, difficult to compare German offer comes which write is in the paper as I sent you the, the abstract uh, but there are different logics uh, at place also there are some similar logics but yeah it's a, I think that's a big uh, difference I feel so. You can pick up this from Chris. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean. I no. Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 such a it's such an interesting. I was going to not even narrative because I I don't think that the German model is is that well discussed or understood. I think within the the broader internationalization sphere, um, and particularly as you say, Tim, it it is it is somewhat of an outlier. Um, and whereas, you know, the bulk of the literature goes to the Australians or, or the British or the Americans to an extent. Um, uh, and then we sort of moved our focus to now the export from previously receiving countries. So we, we sort of moved sort of the mature model around. It's, it's always, I think, really interesting to think about the, the particularly the motivations. And this is something that Judith and I have talked about. I mean, to be fair, most British branch campuses don't break even for a decade. Right. So the, the financial model um you know is is not a guaranteed income drive um and often the british particularly the british models are are driven by you know altruistically on the top the global footprint the global engagement the internationalization agenda however that sort of is is framed but it is a pathway to student recruitment i mean that's there there is obviously a, a strong financial financial model the curious thing about the british one is because of the the nature of the british university within britain you know um and then maybe even holding the charity status and then it goes abroad and the branch campus becomes a joint venture for profit. There's obviously a, a sort of a, I don't know, a conversation maybe in that space to be, to be balanced. Um, I, I always find it really interesting with the, the little that I do know about the German model. And I've had students working on um, the German Jordanian university, you know, looking at, at that type of sort of engagement. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested to, to try to better understand how is it viewed at home? So, you know, people around a German university within the, the, the community or the, the city or, or the industry, etc. Is a branch campus viewed as something they barely think about, don't know? It's an avenue for engagement. You know, it's, is there an, a sense that it's, it's something that's going on? Or is it simply an endeavor the university does that they have, you know, 
either no interest or, or relevance to them. Because um, particularly I'm thinking about those, those engagements between, you know, as you said, if you're looking for research intensive, we're looking for often industry engagement. And those do create potential opportunities for trade, for engagement, for, you know, et cetera. So I'm, I'm just curious to, to learn more about how they're perceived at home, I suppose. That's a very interesting question. I mean, we haven't paid particular attention to this, so all I know is anecdotal. Sure. Um, also, there are there are so f- in comparison there are so few. There's at the moment I think five are operating, of which one is already phasing out, not accepting any more students. Uh, it's the TU Berlin campus in Aguna in Egypt. I still I think they are still operating, but. It, it's got to be only a handful of students by now mm. that are just completing their masters, I guess. So, because it's so few, not many people know about it in the first place. At least colleagues that I sp- spoke to, and of course we are, for example, going to conferences and presenting to German colleagues. And for most of the people, the whole the whole concept of an offshore campus is something something new mm-hmm. that they have never heard of before. And then when you explain it, it's something strange. <clears throat> right. Uh, it's perceived as something strange. And why would universities do this? Um, the, but it, I think this is because the German system, or at least the, the German, the German-speaking university system. It's not. I think Austria is similar. Um, it's different from this. Uh, yeah. The from the a bit different <clears throat> at least from from the logic in, in the Anglophone world. And then. When universities universities have offshore campuses, and I, there's sometimes a, sometimes there's a public debate now that I think about it because, at least at the TU Berlin campus, because it was in Egypt, so a country with very low levels of academic freedom, very authoritarian government. Um, there's of course a lot of discussion, also among colleagues, about academic freedom and what what does it do to the university, what does it mean for a university to have a campus, and to run a campus in such a in such an environment? And there's a lot of political, like politically motivated discussions about about academics, whether it's uh, justified to have a campus in such a in such an environment. Um, that's yeah, a, it's a, it's a, I mean, that's a point that Judith and I actually were talking about in a, in a previous podcast. Um, based on Judith's uh, engagement with the Going Global uh, conference, you know this this conversation about values, and we've talked and written about this a lot. You know, which is a, the the concept of a university, which I, I appreciate is very different between the British system and the and the German system. You know, the length of time, the cost, etc. So, you know, the idea or the ideal of what a university is for, and where it gets that identity from, <clears throat> what purpose it serves, um, and obviously that construct. When, as that differs, when that's exported, naturally that differs. And the relationship people would have with the point or the value of a university naturally differs. And why you would go somewhere, you know, that can, that can be very, very different. And we've, we've talked about how, where this value structure comes from and how it changes when you export it. You know, are you replicating the same model abroad? You, perhaps you cannot replicate the same model abroad. And then if you can't, why are you doing it? You know, what are you gaining or what are you losing from that experience? Um, yeah, I mean, this is a, I, I, it's probably not talked about that much. You know, we all in it are aware of it, but maybe it's not uh, not talked about as much as it, as it maybe could be. I'm um, sorry, Judy, I think I saw you 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you, you've, you've had experience yourself, haven't you, Tim, obviously, of living and working in different sorts of places, as, as I guess um, Chris and I both have as well, you know, different ones. And and as Chris was saying in our, in our last podcast, we were talking about the kind of challenges that, that you can get when it comes to, to values and when it comes to activities within countries. There's academic values, of course, and academic freedom, but then there's just fundamental, you know, human rights, lots of different types of values, aren't there? And um, whereas I, I'm, and I'm probably not asking you a question here, it's more of a reflection, but it would be interesting to hear your reflection on it. Um, because it's just notoriously a difficult one, isn't it, when you're at universities. As an individual academic, you know, you might be working with people, well, you will no doubt be working with people across the globe in environments that you personally don't agree with in terms of the activities that are taking place. But actually, it is so important that you're doing that research together to help try and either shape environments that you're both working with or indeed just deal with a, a mutual challenge that we might have, whether we're located in in Wales, in Dubai, in Germany, in Vietnam or in Egypt, you know. And, and certainly when I was in uh, Going Global, which is a big British Council conference here last week, we were having some discussions with this in a small, in a small round table. Um, and, I, and I suppose... When we started talking about values, you know, it became so complex that we almost immediately stopped talking about values and started talking about mutual areas that are of challenge to everybody that we could maybe work together on in a, in a way that we were all comfortable with. <laughs> um, just because, I suppose, at its most simplistic, if you, you could probably look at any number of different countries and for whatever reason... Lots of different reasons. You might not necessarily feel as though you would, with their value system, want to be working with that country. And no doubt vice versa, you know, with our own countries and our own systems. Um, so, yeah, I'm just interested to hear, Tim, a, a little bit about your about your reflections on that. Because I, I sometimes also think, just finally, that universities or individuals within universities also can be somewhat hypocritical in this space because we're very often very happy to accept students coming from pretty much any country and any region we are we are happy to accept sponsors students coming from pretty much any country in any region and many academics on a personal one-to-one will be working very often with academics from any country in any region but it's almost as though when it starts to extrapolate up or we look at it in a different way, then the big value system question comes in and we say, oh, we shouldn't be doing that. But it doesn't stop us doing other things. So I don't know. It's, um, as I say, it's not, a, it's not a, a question as such, but just more of a thought about whether that value side of it has ever come into any of the things that you've looked at or just what your personal thoughts might be on it. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think this ties in pretty well with the discussion that's taking up um, speed at the moment in Germany, which is about science diplomacy. And I think it it, it it touches on these interpersonal relations that you described, but it also touches upon uh, cooperation on a on a on a project base, cooperation on an institutional base, 
we talk about university partnerships, and of course it, talk, it touches upon uh, international international um, international cooperation between for in terms of science, um, and there. <coughs> I think there are a lot of problems to which I don't have have a solution, but also a lot of of of, of moral questions. I say, I say. So, when is the point to stop a cooperation with a particular country, for example? Um, this was the case the case after Russia's, Russia's invasion of 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 Ukraine, because you could very well make make the argument that any international cooperation, or even on an academic base with Russia lends its credibility and it should be stopped for political reasons. But then you can also make the argument that also in very authoritarian countries and um, like Russia, that universities are usually the last resorts of a liberal of a liberal liberal part of the of the society. So so cut them off also from this lifeline they may they might have through such an international cooperation. It's a very difficult um, political decision, and I'm glad that I don't have to make these these decisions. Um, I'd, I'd say, for example, in the case of German offshore campuses and the whole debates about academic freedom, should we have an offshore campus in, an, um, in a country with, with low levels of academic freedom? It's, it's mostly a discussion about principle, not about the practical implications of the actual offshore campus, because most actual offshore campuses from German universities, at least, usually export programs like engineering, also business education, um, um, computer sciences. So programs where it's not very likely that some um, delicate political issues or social issues or cultural issues uh, uh, are tackled. So it usually doesn't play a role in the actual operations of the offshore campus. Um, I suppose so, as well, Tim, you know, that's a, that's a really good point because it also thinking about just practically when people do have those those kind of campuses, you know, very often, um, I mean, you, we did, you did mention the, the, the campus that, that you talked about a little bit in Egypt, but I know that a lot of other campuses also just focus on undergraduate recruitment don't they and, and learning and teaching and as you say therefore not only the subject something that is um I can't, I can't even think of the word that one might use but not not a controversial subject anyway not one that's that's going to dramatically change the social or political or you know scientific landscape somewhere um, so you might be doing business management, or you might be doing, but but you're you're then doing them at an undergraduate level. So it's not the kind of you know level of intensity that that or or detail where you you might feel as though you're making some really major changes scientifically. Um, so I suppose that's why a number of of campuses either begin that way, or indeed just continue that way because you then don't have to have what can be those quite difficult questions, don't you? But I really, you know, also think your point, uh, you know, in your, your your previous example with, you know, a, a question that we all then often ask ourselves is, isn't it, is, um, you know, if, if we stop working across these borders, these challenging borders for all, all of us, if we stop working across the boundaries, then are we ever going to get anywhere near solving some of the problems that we have got 
culturally, socially, you know, across the world. And, you know, we're never all going to be exactly the same, but are we ever going to be able to find some way through, navigate some way through? And if you simply don't engage, you're never going to be able to do that, are you? I suppose that's the point. You're never going to be able to do that if you just don't engage at all. I suppose the tricky bit is just thinking about somehow you might do it in a way that doesn't compromise the value system of all of those involved. Mm. Yeah, I, I think in particular because I think academia is such a great area where it's, I think I think scientists get along very pretty easily even across across different cultures because most are driven by an, an academic interest, and uh, I think it's. It's it's pretty easy to create networks and discussions through academia, so it's not something that should be discarded easily. I think. Um, I was just thinking. I think in what something that I found very interesting in in my research is how it, the whole issue of academic freedom and uh, research and uh, operations of offshore campuses plays out in in Qatar, because. I think different from offshore campuses in Dubai, there are actually some offshore campuses in Qatar that offer more social science and, and humanities-focused programs. And they also they have Education City, which is similar to Dubai International Academic City, but it's less designed as a, as a free zone, um, at least legally. But, because, but culturally, it, it very much is like a, like a free zone, like a special economic zone, because everything that, that, that happens there is regarded as something foreign anyway, as something exceptional. So there is some kind of leeway that they can operate in. There are red lines that they cannot cross. So there's definitely uh, not the same amount of academic freedom that these, uh, these very prestigious university, uh, American university campuses have mm. at home. But there is some, it's, it's very nuanced. I think if you work and live there, it's, uh, you, le you need to learn to navigate these, these, uh, these red lines somehow. Um, I would be interested, Chris, maybe in, in your experience, I was, I'm thinking the whole time about it, what's your experience in, in Dubai with, with this issue? <clears throat> yeah, no, I mean, it's... So, I mean, I'll, I'll certainly reflect on that because it, it, what's interesting is, um, you know, that last point that you made, and there's a phrase you use in your writing, spaces of exception, which I think is a, is a very interesting way of, of putting it because, you know, in many cases, you know, a lot of the branch campuses are accepted to run in different regions based, and I don't say purely in a, in a diminutive way, but based on the fact that they are credited at their home base. So they are effectively allowed a business license. They operate as a foreign entity um, to provide a service within. So they are, they are more of a business structure than they are perhaps of a, say, viewed as an academic with, a, with that sort of approach. Um, and yet, of course, they're all subject to the, the laws and the constraints as, as is anybody anywhere, right? <clears throat> and I think it's what I, what I was reflecting on what you were saying is what's interesting is you use another phrase, which is sort of circulation and containment. And a lot of the, the economic zones now in, in, in the, the area where I work in the Middle East, they're looking to attract and retain talent. So it's looking to build the society rather than have it be, say, Malaysia in particular was much more of a transient. People come in, get your degree, and then you go, right? You, it's not building the capacity in, in that way. It's a financial addition. Whereas a lot of the Middle Eastern hub and the Gulf region is looking to attract talent, retain talent, and have that talent build and grow the, the relative societies. And so you, you say, right, that's a very logical approach. But then if you, you sort of unpack that and say, 
okay, but the universities that are delivering these degrees and these things, they are then reinforcing the status quo or the population within. And so then the value question comes back because, you know, you are, you are directly playing into and supporting the capacity building of a state or a city, you know, absent perhaps the conversations that you might be having. So in essence, you are, you are part of the system in, in both, both regards. Um, I certainly, from my experience, I mean, I, my university is, is a really curious one uh, in the sense that we are a, we were established by a rule of law to create a British university presence in, in a place where predominantly it was an American, if it was foreign, it was largely uh, American. Uh, but we were not a T&E university in the sense that we had, you know, student mobility. We were a private Emirati institution running a British curriculum with British Alliance members. Now we are QAA accredited now and, and they, they, they do look at us and we are locally, et cetera, et cetera. And we began as a postgraduate university. So we were masters and PhD students only. And then a few years ago, we opened the undergraduate. So we went from being research intensive to then being the sort of initial T&E stage, right? Where you bring in the undergrads because that's where the income is. And now we have two plus two agreements with our UK partners. So we've, we've kind of gone, gone at it almost backwards in every regard to come back to where you would have started. Um, so from that perspective, and, and I work in the faculty of education where, you know, conversations about, you know, curriculum development, you know, engagement, you know, diversity, multiculturalism. And we run undergraduate modules on diversity, multiculturalism, philosophy. We are having those types of conversations um, with undergraduate students, um, which is sometimes challenging. Um, but um, I mean, I remember when I worked in, in Southeast Asia and, and did some work in China, you know, modules were introduced and you had to change the title. You couldn't for very many reasons, you couldn't introduce a politics degree into China and say, we're now going to teach people how to run democracy. Like, it, that doesn't make sense in the context. Um, and a lot of the degrees were sort of added on. So you had to follow exactly what you said, the sort of the standard, this is where we can recruit. So it's a business, it's a tourism, but we sort of tack on a language. So you were sort of introducing the, the humanities almost by a backdoor way through, you know, what was seen as a traditional recruitment model. Um, uh, yeah, I, like you, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to, I'm not on a policy level making these decisions because I think it's a, as you said, it's a very complex approach where there are multiple strands all operating in tandem from the individual to the departmental to the, you know, the institutional and within, within the context. Um, but as, as Judith, you said in one of our previous podcasts, if we don't have these conversations, if we don't continue to have these conversations, it's not, about, it shouldn't be about we're trying to change you. Because that's an assumption that we are right and you are wrong. And I think if we look at it from the other way, you are going to be right and we are going to be wrong. So if we take that assumption away and say, yes, there are certain fundamental values and rights that we and you both believe in or individually believe in. But conversations through this, exactly as you said, Tim, if universities are this bastion of liberal thought and engagement, we should be talking, right? We should be, we should be engaging with this. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I find it, I, I really like that phrase, spaces of exception. Um, you know, it almost, it's that reverse of what we talked about before, you know, that, that town and gown where universities used to be the sort of ivory tower where really intelligent people thought about things and never told anybody anything. And it's like, well, what, what's the point of, point of that, right? Um, yeah, um, inter a very interesting, very interesting area of, of, 
sort of discussion. I think it raised very, very important. Oh, sorry, Judith. Sorry. No, no, please, Tim. I, ju- I think you just raised a very important point, which is this this idea of it's usually Western universities when they go to a country in the global south that they are these uh, pristine institutions with a with a hundred percent academic freedom, and then now they have to deal with this messy environment where they have to cut down on their values and stuff like this. But that's not the case. I mean, uh, also German, in Germany, there's a lot of issues about academic freedom. And when you talk about um, whether a university should go to an let's say, authoritarian country or not, because it tarnishes their their uh, their institutional culture, then this then that closes over kind of the issues and the debates that we are having in Germany about academic freedom, the influence of, of, of private companies on universities and on research, stuff like this. It's very, um, I think it's kind of an um, orientalist way of thinking, of mm-hmm. course. Um, also in my, in my interviews with German university decision makers, with branch campus developing universities, you'll find these orientalist tropes of, you know, these enlightened German institutions going to an underdeveloped country and then mm. bringing uh, German a German higher education to these people. Mm. Um, it's a very common narrative among them. I mean, it's it's not um, it's not ill-minded, you know, but it 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 reproduces a post-colonial power relation, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, yeah, that's just an observation um, that we had also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually something I was something I was just going to mention, Tim. You sort of picked it up there, really, about the the, the shifting power balance, seemingly anyway, mm. in in these kind of transnational interactions. You know, I mean, I don't know whether, actually if that really has been the case or was the case, because you know, if if, if a country, if country X wants to, to either upskill their staff members and let them have, and get them to have PhDs if they want to do any number of things and they, they've invited people in to do that and they're getting what they want and the other, you know, country and or institution is getting what they want as well, isn't it? But I, I just wonder whether, whether it, it is becoming more equitable now, whether the, whether that balance of power has ever so slightly shifted and indeed whether certainly the the country or the institution that's that's in the, the home area you know that has requested to have some you know changes or something you know brought into their system whether they're just also now much more focused in terms of who they really do want and you know instead of anybody being able to go anywhere and do anything they can't do that. Quite, quite rightly, you know, you, you have got countries and other institutions saying, actually, no, you, you don't. You don't either suit our system. You're not going to give us what, what we want. You're, the, the quality that you're going to be looking at here isn't the same that we think that you will deliver at home, all of those sorts of things. And maybe the, the, there's, a, there's also, therefore, a slight, I wouldn't say a, maybe a, a shift in power, but maybe just a balancing that that you know like as with any i suppose partnership whatever it is there's got to be for it to be sustainable 
there's got it's got to balance eventually and be equal, isn't it? Some bits will tip, and some bits will will you know some sides will will get more in, than others in in some of them for certain parts of it. But overall, it's got to be something that's mutually beneficial. Otherwise, it's not simply not going to survive. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you said there is no shift in power, but. I think I would I would say there is a shift of power at least if you talk about the global let's say the global higher education landscape and the the and the, the landscape of of hegemony maybe let's put it that way because mm. at the moment I think Western higher education in particular Anglophone higher education in the British American universities they still have so much reputation. Um, And there's still, I think, a hegemony of this. And it's connected to, to geographical imaginaries, of course. And uh, this is why, this is why there are also, there are so many uh, offshore campuses, I think, from, that are working from British and American universities. Because our students, particularly in the global south, want to have an American or a British degree. Um, and I think for most of them, it's most important to have a British degree rather than a degree from a particular British university. Yeah. Um, because it holds so much reputation. Um, for their global career path or international career path or for the jobs that they are seeking and the internationalized parts of the countries that they are, are coming from. Um, but if we speak about where knowledge is produced, I think, and how reputation is heavy shifting, I think there are there's definitely some movement because um, with all this education, uh, with all these branch campuses, for example, opening up in the Gulf or operating in the Gulf and these countries wanting to establish them as education hubs, This creates a new pattern in the movement of transnational, transnationally mobile uh, students. Now they are suddenly getting the education and the ideas and their, the way they are building their personality in Dubai or in Qatar, um, although from British or American universities, but still in a different context. So I think this does something um, to, uh, to how the countries are perceived from which universities are coming. And also, if you look at um, uh, different uh, um, a different aspect of this, if you look at international rankings, you see, you said, I think last week or something, the uh, um, I forgot the name. Um, QS. Which one was it? The QS ranking was published, and there are so many. Uh, of course, it's not 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 something new, but it's still always striking a thing to see. So many Chinese universities are ranking very high. So that's definitely becoming a center of global knowledge production. Another example is Singapore. And that's a, I think that's very interesting because they utilized offshore campuses to build their reputation. And now you have the NUS, National University of Singapore, as a very research-intensive mm. university that produces excellent research. And also, and that's interesting, in the social sciences, very critical research, um, at least if I look at the field of economic geography, um, I think that's also an, an interesting path that's that's um, that's being created, and it resembles like the shift from a. It, it I think it somehow resembles the shift towards a more multipolar world. Hmm. I was wondering. I mean, I know we're sort of coming to an end. Um, I wonder if I could ask you because I sort of steal Judith's uh, uh, sort of normal question at this point, which is. Um, about the sort of the future for branch campuses, because you know one of your recent reports that came out was talking about 
the need for regional embeddedness, you know, particularly the work you were doing during the pandemic, you know, looking at branch campuses, regional embeddedness, you know, is a great, you know, big indicator for, for sustainability. So I was just wondering maybe to, to sort of bring us home, if you had any thoughts that you would like to share with us about what you think might be the future for branch campuses, maybe as a broad concept rather than specifically the, the German, German model. I think just in terms of observations, I think the numbers are not slowing down. Maybe there's, of course, they slowed down uh, over the pandemic. But I'm, although I'm not actively observing, looking up branch couples, uh, the, the numbers of branch coming openings right now, I guess it's universities are still considering to open new branch campuses because transnational student mobility is not is not slowing down. Mm. I think in Australia it's it's back up to the numbers from before the pandemic and still again growing. Um, so I think it's not a model that we that that we that we'll see disappear in the coming years. Another question is: Should universities do it? I think they will do it, but should they do it is a different question. I think, and I think there are some good ways how to do it and some less effective ways to do it in terms of local embedment. Mm. I think I think if you look at how offshore campuses are being operated and how they evolved in Oman, that's a good example in my perspective how it should be done because universities operated open offshore campuses but from the beginning, it was clear that they will be tightly integrated into the local education system and at some point evolve into a local institution. And then you don't have the problem of these exceptional spaces and because it gets in, also they have a lot of problems, but it's still, in, it's much deep, more tightly integrated into the local education system. Hmm. So uh, I think this is the way to go to to really closely embed offshore campuses within the local system and to have it clear from the beginning that this will become a local institution. And of course, this contradicts the whole financial aspect of it. Hmm. <laughs> well, where would it be without contradictions, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, wonderful. Uh, Judith, anything for... No, no, just, just to say thank you very much, um, Tim. It's been wonderful to talk to you today. And, um, you know, as is often usual in the Think Education podcast, we've come out with lots more questions than we have with, uh, with answers. But I, but I do, I suppose, just finally, I do, I do think it's interesting, your, your last point, though, on maybe how a model, a model will shift and, and in some ways... Chris, as well, thinking of the institution you're in, very much the exception in this whole landscape about how it started, how it's ended up, you know, that, that actually maybe the exception, which is clearly done extremely well, will become more common as we go forward, if indeed, you know, we do go forward in this space. But I particularly like it when you uh, said, Tim, that, you know, in, institutions could do something whether they should do them is a whole different question. Maybe we should just leave it at that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, it was a very uh, interesting discussion. Very nice. Thank you.